Hello and welcome to the new season of the Michael Collins House podcast. In 2020, we brought you 12 episodes in total and in 2021, we hope to do the same. We have set out our general programme for the year, an important year of centenary commemorations for us here at Michael Collins House. Most, if not all, of our podcasts will be directly related to centenary events happening at the time. Most will be purposefully recorded for the podcast, while we hope as things open up towards the end of the year we will be able to return to our regular history talks, which will then be recorded and edited together as a podcast as well. So, on our first episode back, we are going to take a look at the events surrounding the Dripsy Ambush in County Cork. It is a, it's a very controversial event, but I think it's an important one to look at as an example of the true nature of the Irish War of Independence. And the ambush itself was one of the biggest failures in Cork at the time when the IRA tactics were achieving so much success elsewhere like Kilmichael and other places. Um, but more interesting are the events surrounding the uh, ambush itself which really gives an insight into the realities of rural life and local politics at the time in Ireland. Things were not so much black and white as they are sometimes portrayed but rather several different shades of grey. Now for this podcast, um, our very own historian Cal McCarthy will take the reins and not only is Cal an expert on this period of Irish history with well-known publications such as Coming On and the Irish Revolution um, but he is also a local to the area and has grown up listening to stories of the events that left their mark on that area for generations. The facts, the local speculation and the nuances um, of this make for a dramatic and harrowing tale and give a very real illustration of the war. Um, as I said, uh, this is a controversial topic. Uh, it is still close to the bone for a lot of people, especially those who may have relatives involved. Um, so our aim isn't to choose sides um, or to approve or denounce the actions of individuals. It's simply um, just to try and piece together as accurate a picture of the events as possible. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Cal McCarthy to discuss the Dripsy Ambush. Enjoy. Okay, so uh, speaking about the Dripsy Ambush today, uh, a famous incident in mid-Cork during the, uh, the Irish War of Independence, Famous perhaps because it was in many ways a failure, where incidents like Kilmichael were a success, and also famous because of its aftermath, which resulted in one of the most famous executions of the period. I am local to the area. I'm speaking to you from um, Carrigadrohud, which is, I would say, about four miles from the Dripsy Ambush. Uh, and I grew up here um, in the middle of all the stories of the, the Dripsy Ambush, which obviously like anybody with an interest in the period, I would have heard from uh, older people in my youth. Uh, but most of what you're about to hear comes from the work of Tim Sheehan, a local historian who wrote a book called Lady Hostage back in the 1990s. And from Sean O'Callaghan, um, who wrote a book called Execution back in the 1970s. So it's mostly their work that I'm using. I may occasionally refer to things that were, were said in the locality or that I had heard said in the locality, and obviously where I do that, I make it clear that that's what I'm doing. 
Um, so to begin with a little bit of background about what was going on here, um, the Dripsy ambush happened obviously in the early days of uh, 1921. But what had happened before that around the area, well pretty much what had happened in a lot of Ireland at that point, the IRA had been burning down um, police barracks and uh, trying to set up ambushes here and there with, with, with varying degrees of success. The thing that maybe made, made Cork a little bit different was the Bowen Colthurst boycott. Now some of you will be familiar with the name Bowen Colthurst and uh, the, the Bowen Colthurst family were strong in, in the Lee Valley from McCroom, kind of north of the River Lee, uh, right heading east right in towards Cork City or in towards in as far as Blarney anyway. The Bowens had a lot of uh, residences, land and even um, industrial complexes uh, in that area. And the reason you would be familiar with the name is because it was uh, a Bowen Colthurst that shot Sheehy Skeffington in Dublin uh, in Easter week. One of the more famous uh, executions, I suppose, because Sheehy Skeffington was shot. He was a journalist who was shot for no reason. Uh, this guy dragged him out of the jail and, and, and shot him. Um, simply because he knew he was a radical, even though Sheehy Skeffington had had nothing to do with the rebellion. So in the wake of that, the Bowen Colthurst family still had to live in, in rural Ireland amidst all of their neighbours, weren't terribly approving of what had happened. And in Cork, or in this area anyway, as the War of Independence ramped up, if you like, uh, there was a, bo a boycott uh, declared against the Bowen against the Bowen family, and this resulted in uh, closure of uh, like a cheese factory they had in Dripsy, where the farmers wouldn't or couldn't supply the milk because if you read the newspapers at the time, even I remember reading them a few years ago now, uh, farmers bringing milk there were accosted and the churns turned over on the side of the road. Uh, the people refused to thrash corn, um, to provide labour to the bones. You'll find a lot of that too actually in the RIC reports of the period. Uh, they basically wouldn't cooperate with the bone cultures and a lot of the workmen on the various estates were even told to, told to uh, stop working in these places. Now, one of those places uh, that maybe people from outside of this area might be familiar with is Blarney Castle, which is still a, a Bowen Colters property. And if any of you have ever been to Blarney, you would have seen Blarney Manor as well. Blarney Manor uh, survived the period. Uh, many of the Bowen properties were burned. There's one, I'd say, a few hundred yards from here called Oakrove that was, was burned. Um, Oakrove was rebuilt after. Uh, and other properties were, were destroyed as well as I'd say. Blarney survived because apparently the, the gentleman resident there at the time decided that he would pay a levy to the, the, the IRA uh, an arms fund if you like. He had initially refused to pay this levy but uh, his paying of the levy according to Sheehan anyway saved the house in Blarney. So all of this activity around the Bone Colters I suppose maybe set, uh, it could be argued, set Mid-Cork out as a little bit different. Uh, there was a tension between the loyalist community and their neighbours, perhaps. Uh, even though the Bowen Colters were highly regarded in the area, um, so I've, I've contradicted myself there, if you like, but I know, and I've just been reading Sheen's book prior to this, and I know from my own youth that some of the older people would tell you they were quite fond of the Bowen Colters, and Sheen seems to have concluded 
the same thing. So there was, if you like, a political reality where the nationalists of the area decided to boycott the Bowens because of, of what John Bowen Coltress had done to Sheehy Skeffington. Um, and, you know, they had, I'm sure, varying degrees of sympathy and support in that boycott. But there was also a general feeling locally and even among the nationalist community that it was unfortunate that people like uh, Peggy and, and Georgina Bowen were paying the price for something that one of their family had done. Uh, the reason that the IRA gave for this, according to Sheehan, it would seem, is that they were concerned that John Bowen may come back to the locality and uh, they wished to ensure that he wouldn't. Um, so the, the, the whole thing was an ugly affair that maybe set something in motion in Cork that culminated in, in what happened after Dripsy. Um, but certainly as we move on, you'll see that, that the loyalist community in Cork um, or in this area perhaps paid uh, in the form of Mrs. Lindsay a price that may not have been paid in, in many other places. So uh, the background to the Dripsy ambush itself then, there was a failed ambush at Inascara. Uh, just a few months previously, where uh, apparently they they'd failed to set up a roadblock in time or something. So the, the battalion that planned the Dripsy ambush planned it in the wake of a failure. They decided to ambush a patrol that regularly travelled the road here, as I say, north of the River Lee between Cork and McCroom. And the site of the ambush was chosen because it provided an escape route running northwards up towards uh, Dunmore. The area also was bounded by the River Lee on the southern side, so... The, the whole area meant, you know, as is normal in ambush, when the patrol drove in, uh, they couldn't escape north because the IRA were north of the road and south because the river was south of the road and then there were roadblocks on either end of the ambush zone. So the column moved into a position um, on the night of the 27th of January and they were there by the morning of the 28th of, of January. They waited most of the day on the 28th of January, but little did they know that uh, their position had been betrayed and the British authorities were uh, very quickly aware of their presence. The reason that the IRA were aware, or that the British authorities were aware of the IRA's presence at Tripsy was because of a local loyalist woman called Mrs Lindsay. And we begin perhaps by giving a little bit of a background on Lindsay. She was born in Mayo, apparently Mary Rawson was her name originally. And she married a, lin a linen merchant from County Down uh, called John Lindsay. They uh, settled in Down originally but moved to Lee Mountain in 1901. And if you read the newspapers of the time, there seems to have been some considerable kind of legal wrangling surrounding the Lindsay estate in that area. Uh, the banks were involved and they were looking for tenants to, to vacate the uh, properties. So it's, it's difficult to establish what's going on there. But I suppose it's sufficient to say that there was some difficulty with a bank uh, in the early days of the Lindsay possession. Uh, John Lindsay also had a dispute, which you find in the papers, with a local farmer over fox hunting. Lindsay was very much into fox hunting and this local farmer had been poisoning foxes, which Lindsay objected to. And the local farmer pointed out that uh, he needed to protect his fowl from the foxes and he wasn't going apologising to John Lindsay for doing so. Uh, local sources kind of spoke of, of a tension sometimes between Mrs Lindsay and her neighbours. I think that comes out in Callaghan's book. Uh, that some of the more established families in the valley, like the Bone Coulters, like the uh, Godfreys, uh, felt that Mrs Lindsay 
was a little bit more vocalism in her unionism than they would prefer. Uh, they, I suppose, had learned to live amongst their nationalist neighbours. Um, Mrs Lindsay had come from a different part of Ireland in County Down and sometimes maybe wasn't as sensitive to the political opinions of the locals as some of her unionist contemporaries and neighbours would have liked. There was, she also employed and brought with her a chauffeur called James Clark, and, and Clark, according to Callaghan, and uh, not according to Sheen, and Sheen was the more local source, but I think it was in Callaghan's book that Clark was, was, was said to have occasionally uh, ventured into Coachford to get drunk, uh, Coachford being a local village, and when he was drunk, he would sing songs like the sash down in Coachford, so he didn't ingratiate himself to the, himself to the locals either, if that is true. Uh, Mrs. Lindsay also formed a strong, well, a friendship with a local priest called Father Shinnick. He was the curate in the parish. Uh, he was very anti-IRA, and Mrs. Lindsay perhaps maybe bonded with him over as, as a result of that. Um, but he was, he was known to be a, certainly an acquaintance of Mrs. Lindsay. Um, according to Sheehan, they used to speak regularly, and, and they, were, they liked each other. Um, though, obviously, they moved in, in different uh, social spheres generally. John Lindsay died in 1918 and he left Mrs. Lindsay widowed. So on the morning of the ambush, Mrs. Lindsay was heading to Cork and she went to Coachford Village. And a local grocer in Coachford told her, don't go the Northern Road, head over south of the River Lee because there's an ambush on the Northern Road. Now, how did he know that this ambush was happening? Again, that's something I remember in my youth was, was discussed regularly. Uh, there are all sorts of theories. Uh, Sheehan concludes, having researched it probably better than anyone, that uh, the, some of the people who were asked to vacate the ambush, including one of, of the grocer's employees, uh, brought the news uh, to the grocer. So uh, that's, that's, or it was a baker actually, I think. So that's probably the most likely reason. You hear as well, I remember hearing that a, a knight of the roads, as they were called at the time, um, somebody without a home basically left a house in Dripsy that morning and went up to the village and the news spread from there. It would seem that the IRA were not particularly careful about betraying their position and that the news spread to Coachford, perhaps by a number of sources. And certainly people were very aware of the ambush uh, in the Coachford area in the culture village that morning. So when Lindsay found out, what did she do? Uh, did she go straight to the, the loyalist authorities, to the British authorities and tell them that there was an ambush in Dripsy? She didn't, and, and this is maybe part of the um, moral debate about what happened at Dripsy, because the first thing she did was she went to Father Shinnick, and she told him about the ambush, and she said, look, I'm going to Valencolic, because she was actually going there anyway, she was getting her car, um, checked by the military, uh, something they had to do at the time to ensure that the IRA weren't using these cars. Uh, so she said, look, I'm going to Ballancolig and I'm going to tell the, the Crown authorities about this and if I were you, I would go down to the ambush and I would make sure that the IRA get out of there because I'd be sending the army in their direction. Uh, so Shinnick went down and he found a local IRA operative's brother and they, he was brought near to the ambush to communicate with a scout uh, Shinnick told them that the Mrs. Lindsay was heading to Ballancolly and the IRA discussed this development. Uh, but Shinnick, known to be uh, completely rabidly 
anti-IRA decided that uh, the IRA decided that you can't believe this guy that basically this is more kind of anti-IRA nonsense from the local priest and we're staying where we are and we're you know going to have uh, a great victory here and that's probably important to, to, to think about too that you know this was in the wake of something like Kilmichael and uh, this was potentially a, a similar size patrol that would be coming along the road and uh, they seemed to have set up a very good position and had the, the, the uh, British wandered into that position it probably would have resulted in, another, in an IRA victory. The ambush was quite well planned except for the fact that they simply weren't conscious of the fact that the whole country knew they were there. Uh, so Lindsay went to Ballincollig via the southern road and she warned the Crown forces that there was an ambush at Dripsy. She was even able to give them the precise location of where it was, that's how much she was told in Cotchard Village. The patrol set out for, for Dripsy and apparently according to Sheen they were quite cautious as they went and they even stopped two young fellas uh, bowling on the road between Cork and Dripsy, bowling being that game that, they, uh, that uh, people play in Cork with the, the iron road balls played in Armagh as well I believe and maybe even a little part of County Mayo. So they were bowling on the road and this crowd stopped them thinking maybe they were IRA scouts and they were interrogated. Uh, so they were extremely cautious moving along the northern road because they were also conscious that the IRA was well able to put out rumours saying that we are here and that the rumour, if you like, was to draw these military patrols out into the countryside. The patrol halted at Dripsy Cross uh, and again you hear different accounts of what happened there. Uh, some say they were drilled at the cross. Uh, I think I saw that in a witness statement. Sheehan says that they discussed a detailed plan um, and they probably would have had to do that. And I remember hearing in my youth that, that to some of the, the, the people who saw them that day, they looked like they were kind of hanging around a bit, you know. Um, I, to be honest, I don't believe that. But I think that the accounts cor um, corroborate each other to a degree because maybe to an untrained military eye, it looked like these guys were hanging around. And of course, the local rumour mill went after that, that, you know, were they giving them a chance to escape? Was there a certain amount of sympathy for these guys among the British Army, perhaps Irish soldiers? Uh, but it would seem more logical to me that they weren't hanging around so much as they were discussing a plan. Uh, so they proceeded to encircle the IRA and uh, they, they basically, I suppose, moved north of the position and east of the position and uh, the river, as I say, was to the south. They couldn't quite close the encirclement before the IRA spotted them and the IRA fought their way out of it. But as they went, 10 were taken prisoners. One of the more interesting stories from Dripsy actually is that one of the IRA was retreating in the chaos through a field when he spotted a ploughman and he put his, his gun into the furrow and the gun was ploughed over and the, the man in question took the reins of the horse and the people were, they were able to convince the, the uh, British officers that they had been ploughing there and it had nothing to do with the ambush. Of course, that was true. That was only true in one of their cases. So the ten people who were taken at Dripsy, five of them were actually wounded, and two of them were civilians who had had nothing to do with the ambush. This was a great victory for the British. Uh, they had, unlike you know, they'd suffered, I suppose, embarrassment at a place like Kilmichael, but this was something they could crow about. They had surprised an IRA group lying in wait, an IRA column lying in wait and they had managed to rout them basically and take 10 prisoners so afterwards 
one of the Unionist newspapers basically boasted quite a bit about how the British and their superior military and, and their marvellous training and everything else had put the run on, on this group of, of IRA murderers quite easily. Uh, it was definitely a very important victory for them. The IRA then began recriminations uh, within their own ranks, and this is possibly one of the reasons why when you, when you grow up in the area, you hear all kinds of different stories coming from all kinds of different directions because all kinds of stories came down all kinds of family trees. And in the wake of the Dripsy ambush, there were certain tensions even among uh, those who had participated on the IRA side because uh, one faction blamed another. And uh, or everyone tried to make out that it was everyone else's fault. The Dripsy company uh, had their scouts accused of vacating posts and they actually, apparently, according to Sheen, they kind of mutinied, they threw down their arms and they said, look, we're having no more with, 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 with involvement with this. And obviously Jackie Leary, the, the uh, battalion commandant, came under fire for ignoring the warning from the priest. Uh, he was a, a rival, if you like, of another guy called Frank Busteed, the vice commandant, and uh, he was, Busteed was tasked with the investigation of what exactly had happened at Dripsy. And he decided he'd start with interrogating Shinnick, the priest. Uh, Bustide seems to have been quite a confrontational character. Um, again, he's, he's, he's one of those characters that he makes the debate about all of, them, all of what happened during the revolution, maybe. You know, you can look at it through. Bustide was a man of action. Sometimes that action was brutal. Uh, so you can argue, I guess, whether the brutality was necessary or not. Uh, and of course, that's you know the, the kind of moral dimension of, of the the revolution is often argued on those terms. Bosid seems like me to me like a good kind of prism to look at that that argument through. Here was a man who did what it took. Um, whether you uh, agree with that or you don't, um, there were reasons why he did what he did, and uh, I suppose we'll get into that later on. Uh, so one of the things Bosid was was actually when we're speaking about Bosid. If we ever get out of this COVID lockdown, and if any of you are in Cork Public Museum, they used to display uh, some of his equipment in there. They probably still do. Uh, they certainly have it in their collection, but like every museum, like us in Collins House and everywhere else, they rotate their collection, I would assume. So it's, it's probably not on permanent exhibition, but it certainly was on exhibition there on occasion. Uh, so he began by interrogating Shinnick, the priest, and O'Callaghan gives a good account of that, where, where Shinnick, or where Busteed and another IRA operative went to the house of the priest. Now, we all know the, the power, if you like, of the priests at the time. Uh, Shinnick, and I suppose you could argue lots of, of the IRA guys at the time, didn't um, hold with that or didn't pay much attention to it. They were far more interested in what they were doing and the... the, the what, from their perspective, the moral correctness, I guess, of what they were doing um, than they were in, in theology or anything else. Uh, so Shinnick, in the Callaghan account of it, there was quite a robust interrogation of Shinnick uh, and the priest felt threatened, shall we say, uh, and eventually he gave up Mrs. Lindsay um, and said, you know, that, that she was the one who had told him about the ambush. So shortly thereafter, she was taken out of Lemount House, which is just west of Coachwardville, on the 17th of February. And Clark, the chauffeur, the guy who had driven her to Ballancolly, I think he was actually a butler or something, but he happened to be driving the car that day. Clark was taken with her. Um, and, you know, this was the guy that allegedly used to 
seeing the sash done in Portrait. So he hadn't ingratiated himself either with the, the IRA. Now, there were those within the IRA that felt that taking Clark was a mistake, um, possibly because he was just a servant uh, and kind of had to do what he was told. But from a practical perspective, they were now holding two prisoners rather than one. So the two of these were taken north into the mountains. Uh, they were moved about a bit, uh, but treat, treated quite well, generally speaking. Meanwhile, the trials of the IRA guys in Cork, the guys who had been captured at Dripsy, proceeded. And uh, Mrs. Lindsay was asked to write a letter telling Strickland that if the IRA prisoners taken at Dripsy were executed, she'd be executed too. Now, she initially refused to do that, um, even when she was told that the IRA would burn all of the houses of her loyalist friends, she still refused to do it. Now, having endured, according to Sheehan, several nighttime marches through the bogs and mountains north of here, um, she eventually relented and she wrote a personal letter along with the IRA's letter to Strickland. So the IRA basically said to Strickland, if you execute our men, we will execute Mrs. Lindsay. And Mrs. Lindsay basically said, I'm, I'm with them, they do have me, and I think they're serious. Um, so would the prisoners be reprieved? Their trial had already started at that point, if you like, and it began on the 8th of February. Now, one of the interesting things was that a few of the local loyalist community testified on their behalf, including uh, Georgina Bowen-Colters, one of the people whom, as I said earlier on, was, was boycotted. Um, and one of the people who, as I say, were, were highly regarded in, in, in the valley. Um, generally, there's a whole, as I say, maybe debate as to what went on there. Um, but Georgina Bowen-Colters certainly showed herself to be a very humane character when testifying on behalf of some of these guys. Uh, five of the men were sentenced to death. Uh, the two civilians were freed and one IRA man was freed. That was the initial trial. So that leaves two remaining at that point. Uh, the five men were then executed, the guys who were sentenced to death, and Mrs. Lindsay was prevailed upon then to send another letter on behalf of the two remaining IRA men who hadn't been tried yet. She did that. Uh, one of those men was seriously wounded, and he died after an amputation. Uh, and after a court-martial on the 9th of March, the other had his death sentence commuted to 25 years penal servitude. The IRA, of course, still had problem here because they had promised that if any of them were executed, Mrs. Lindsay would be executed too. Uh, Frank Bustide, that I mentioned earlier on, apparently he wanted to go further. He wanted to burn, burn every loyalist house in the valley. Uh, Larry, the commandant, didn't. And Larry decided that about a week, less than a week after the after the second court martial, Lee Mount House was burned. So Mrs. Lindsay's house went up in flames. Uh, the IRA were still, meanwhile, left with Lindsay. Um, Frank Bustide had always wanted to execute Lindsay. Um, he felt that they were she was more trouble than she was worth, if you like. You were risking a lot of guys holding this woman hostage. Um, what would happen if the British intercepted? You would have more IRA guys executed. And Frank Bustide had apparently, according to Sheehan anyway, and I would imagine Callahan portrays him as the same kind of guy, a man of action, as I say, wanted her rid of and wanted it to be done quickly so he was putting that or his faction if you like were putting that kind of pressure on on larry the commandant all the time meanwhile the other pressure was coming from the ghq in dublin um ghq didn't want lindsay executed uh collins we're told didn't want it either um the 
there was a Mrs. Lindsay was for her time she was in her 60s so for her time she was quite an elderly woman and it was considered that this wouldn't look good executing an elderly woman like that so in the end basically I suppose Busty's argument won out the local Cork IRA the, the brigade commander also gave his blessing to the local units here to do whatever the heck they wanted to do with Lindsay in his opinion they were on the ground they were dealing with this problem GHQ weren't dealing with this problem and it was all very well for, for Collins and his buddies to have their opinion but they weren't the people running a risk uh, guarding this woman so Bustee then later described the event uh, the events before the execution he described Clark the chauffeur thusly uh, he said he was a pathetic shivering wreck his clothes were in tatters his hand not steady enough to shave himself being forced to drink poteen to steady his mind uh, of Lindsay he said the impression I got of her was that she was a stubborn woman that you would not get any information from her she was cooperative notwithstanding the fact that she was sentenced to death but when I issued the sentence of death to Clark he collapsed completely I don't know what you have there it is two different cultures weak human nature or what Mrs Lindsay was now physically exhausted during the weeks of captivity she had lost over a stone in weight and her black coat and dress hung loosely about her uh, so he then described the execution itself Mrs Lindsay tumbled backwards into the pit Clark slumped forward the IRA officers untied him and pitched him into the grave on top of her I told her that she was going to die she never blinked an eye I would say this for her bravery she was excellent uh, that comes from Callahan's book I think uh, Callahan was a friend of Frank Busteed it's an excellent book actually execution difficult to get nowadays um, but yeah um, I think when you read the book they say they even had to prop Clark up they had to stick two shovels in the ground and, and, and tie his arms to the shovels to keep him standing where they shot him uh, Sheen gives a heartrending account of, of how they were left left the house they were being held and they were told supposed to, to make sure they went quietly they were told you're going to be freed we're bringing you back down to Goldsford they stopped um, some distance down the mountain and uh they stopped at a house and Mrs Lindsay and Clark were in the back of a, a horse cart and they saw Frank Busteed emerging from the house and uh, they had apparently had some friction with Busteed previously and when they saw Busteed they, they, they knew that they weren't going to be freed they were taken up a mountain path and the end that I just described was, was given to them uh, Mrs Lindsay's grave it's often debated around here it's, it's, it's never been discovered you hear various locations uh, even in Sheehan's book he says that she was exhumed twice and moved to various places um, I'm not inclined to believe that myself though obviously as I say Sheehan would have researched it very well I just have a feeling speaking to archaeologists and things that, that you know finding bodies like that and indeed we know it for a long time isn't always easy um, I suspect that Lindsay lays where she was killed uh, or where she was moved very very shortly after that but I suppose that kind of morbid debate about where the body went kind of tells you how controversial that whole um, thing was I was born in 1978 um, my grandmother who lived here with us was born in 1918 so she was a very very young child when all of this happened but I remember her and her friends that used to call here relatives and things would speak about this occasionally um, and you know it was it was something that 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 uh, well it, it 
whenever people spoke about those times, I'm sure every area in Ireland is the same, there was an incident that happened that lived through the memories of all of the people for many, many years. Uh, and this was an incident then on top of that that was highly debatable. Um, so people would discuss and debate it and you'd hear two sides of the argument. And I guess we'll conclude by looking at those two sides. As I say, war is a, a brutal thing um, in any theatre. I've, I've, I've said in the past that often it's the person who takes the gloves off um, that will win the war. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, this particular incident, as much, more than many other incidents, I think, in the War of Independence, show you the brutality of the Irish um, War of Independence. A very elderly woman, and a, well, an elderly woman for her time, a widowed woman, uh, living on her own, albeit with servants, and her chauffeur, who kind of, you would assume had to do what he was told, ended up being killed um, for sticking to her political beliefs. Uh, she was a loyalist. She made no secret of that. Um, made no secret at all of it. And even when she informed on the ambush, she attempted to give the IRA a chance to escape. She wasn't really interested in seeing these guys die. She was interested in saving what she considered the correctly constituted authorities in the country. And there, Sheehan's account anyway certainly says that she, she outlined that, that, you know, on a couple of occasions to the IRA after they'd taken her in her hostage. I didn't do anything wrong. I was simply saving the lives of British soldiers whom I believe are the correctly constituted authorities in this country. Uh, and you guys were given the chance to escape and you didn't. So that's kind of, I think you can understand that perspective. The other perspective, um, which I think maybe comes you know, from the IRA generally, but maybe from Busteed more than anyone else, um, is that we're fighting a war. Um, we can't allow people like Mrs. Lindsay, or anybody, it doesn't matter if it's Mrs. Lindsay, we can't allow anybody to think that they can inform on us at will uh, and do whatever they wish to stop us without there being consequences for them doing that. Um, so... And if we don't take action here, if we don't show the entire country that we mean business, there will be more informers and more IRA people who can, will die as a result of that. So in a sense, by killing Mrs. Lindsay, we're protecting the lives of our own IRA operatives. So there are very definitely two sides. And I think that's the, the historian's job, if you like, to try and understand people as human beings, not as heroes or not as villains. It's very, very easy to look at Frank Busteed as a villain, you know, the, a guy that, that, that killed an old woman in cold blood. Um, but you can argue, as I just did, that he was a guy who did what it took to save the lives of his friends and comrades. Uh, likewise, it's very, very easy to see Mrs. Lindsay as a villain, an informer who um, informed on, on her countrymen, the people, her neighbours, the people she lived with, so as a foreign power uh, could come and kill those people. But again, she didn't see the world that way. She didn't see the British as a foreign power in Ireland. Um, and she had her perspective too. So the job of the historian and say, what would I do in their position? Doing that with Mrs. Lindsay and Frank Busteed, I believe that if I were Mrs. Lindsay, I would probably have done what Mrs. Lindsay did 
if I saw the world the way she saw it. Likewise, if I were Frank Busteed, I would have done what Frank Busteed did if I were brave enough to do it. Because what both of them did took bravery. It took courage for Mrs. Lindsay to, to, to go and inform uh, and to basically tell the IRA that that's what she was doing. I say I would have done it if I saw the world like she did. Likewise, it took courage for Busteed to do what he did. Um, both sides can be understood. Uh, and I suppose the main thing is to understand is that both sides were put on a collision course with each other by the circumstances of the time. Uh, they were like a runaway train on both sides, if you like. You could not stop the tragedy from unfolding in the way it did. You had two courageous people, or lots of courageous people, on both sides that wanted to do the right thing. And when courageous people who each want to do the right thing as they see it collide with each other, and when the right thing is two completely different things for both sides, that's what war is. Uh, and we must do our best to understand it in terms of its humanity always. So for those of you who are interested in looking, uh, as I say, those of you from around Mid-Cork, I won't have told you anything you haven't heard a thousand times already. But from those of you for, uh, from a little further afield that don't know much about this period, when the libraries do open and when we eventually do get back to normal, and I believe we will, uh, the books you're looking for are uh, Execution by Tim Sheen, or sorry, Execution by Sean Callahan and uh, Lady Hostage by Tim Sheen. They're the only two books on the period, and both of them are, are, are quite good, actually. Uh, also, the witness statements, which you'll find on the web now of the Bureau of Military History, there's a little bit about the Drifty Ambush in them as well. Uh, curiously little, actually, because, as I say, this was a controversial um, episode, and the men who wrote about it uh, wrote sparingly about it so those are the two books that you can you can read um and uh, i wish you luck in doing so and also look up the bureau of military history type in tripsy ambush and you'll get uh, little bits and pieces of information there thank you very much for listening so there we have it the harrowing events of the tripsy ambush pieced together excellently by cal mccarthy from this, it is understandable how this dramatic tale has prominently featured in theatre and song. Realistically, events like this could have happened in any small rural village had the same circumstances presented themselves. It exposes the true nature of the War of Independence. Not so much a story of us against them, but a much more complex and layered conflict. So thank you for joining us on this episode of the Michael Collins podcast and I hope you join us again in a few weeks when we come back for the next episode. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.